Let's just let those words sink in. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. All I have is Christ. Father, what can we say in response? What can we do to express our thanksgiving to you? As King David would say in the Old Testament, who am I and what are my people that we should offer anything of ours to you? For you own it all. You are the God of all grace. You are the God of all mercy. And so, thank you. May we hear your word well today. May we take it in to our hearts and our lives that we may share it and show it with a world that's in such need of it. So cause us to see Jesus. Cause us to hear Him this morning. Make Your Word live unto us, I pray. And may You love Your people well today. Through me, help me to, help me to communicate Your Word clearly, lovingly, as you have to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you again for singing. I love singing with you. I know I say this like every week, but I want you to know how special of a time this really is. I encourage you to go in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, as we continue working and walking our way through Mark's gospel, and we've made our way now through almost four entire chapters. And again, I just want to remind you that the title of our series in, Mark, in the gospel of Mark is Life on Purpose. And as we've seen in the first three and a half chapters, Jesus is living his life on purpose. He has come for a specific purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many, we will read in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That's why he's come. And so everything Jesus does on his way to the cross is likewise on purpose. It's intentional. And that's so important for us to get. Because, now listen carefully, because everything God is doing in our lives today is just as intentional and purposeful. Everything God has done in our lives in the past, everything he will do in the future, all of it, we see from the gospel of Mark, is to fulfill God's good and perfect purposes. And that is huge for us. Because some of us have walked into this auditorium this morning struggling. Some of us have walked into this auditorium this morning confused. Some of us have walked into this auditorium this morning with unmet expectations. And what God is doing in our lives doesn't match up with what we think he should be doing. Or how he's doing it. Or why he's doing it. So I want you to see that all that God does is intentional and purposeful. And we get that from looking in on the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel. So you follow along in your copies of God's word, please. Beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 21, I'm going to read three parables that Jesus gives here. We'll stop at the end of verse 34. Here is the word of our God. And Jesus said to them, that is to his disciples, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen and amen. The word of our God. I've entitled this message this morning from these three parables, Clarity. Clarity. How many of us this morning would acknowledge that somewhere along in our lives, we have asked God for clarity? Okay, there's seven, eight of you, nine. Anybody here ever experienced the reality of unmet expectations, the disappointment that accompanies unmet expectations, when, when things you think would make sense just don't, so, don't seem to make sense. Um, when we moved here to Chicagoland two and a half years ago, we expected to find that Chicagoans were high-quality, educated drivers. And in the past two and a half years, we've learned that they are simply the opposite we discover that there are a lot of people here who don't even know where to stop at a stoplight. And so I have given you a visual illustration this morning. Let it begin with us here at Bethel and maybe the world will catch on. Where do you stop at a stoplight? You stop, you pull up to that bold white line. Everybody see the bold white line? Hold on. Maybe, maybe I can get this to work. Right there. Do you know why you pull up to that bold white line? So that you can trigger the stoplight sensor. I have been amazed. Two and a half years we've been here. There have been people who've pulled up and stopped at the stoplight like 30 feet behind that line. And we sit there. And we sit there. And we sit there. And I'm behind them. And I'm trying to love them like Jesus. But part of me wants to get out and go up to the front of their car and bring them lovingly and say, here's the white line. This is where you stop. Driver's education free today in church, okay? Unmet expectations. We all have them, right? When things don't go as planned, when things just don't seem to make sense. How many of you have gone through seasons of following Jesus where you've been confused by what God has been doing? 
because he hasn't met your expectations, where you've misunderstood God's purposes, or you've doubted God's plans, or you've questioned God, excuse me, God's love, because you don't get what God is doing or how he's doing it. The Bible is honest about that struggle, our struggle. In fact, the Bible speaks truth to that struggle of our unmet expectations and our confusion when, when we've asked God to give us children, but he hasn't. When we've raised our sons and daughters to love Jesus, but one of them doesn't. When I've dreamed of having a, a godly, Christ-honoring marriage, but it isn't. When I prayed that my dad would come to love and follow Jesus, but he didn't. If you struggle with unmet expectations, you are in good company this morning because that's exactly where the followers of Jesus are right here in Mark chapter 4. You know, one of my aims in preaching is to enable you to crawl into the mind and hearts of the original audience and in this text, the followers of Jesus. And to feel what they are feeling and to think what they are thinking. And so when Jesus announces back in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 that the kingdom of God is at hand right here, right now in me, I'm the king God has sent. I want you to know what that sounds like to their ears and what that feels like in their hearts. Because the Old Testament promises that when Messiah comes, he will reign like King David. With God's kingdom advancing and prospering. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Right here in Mark 4. And that's where the disciples are struggling. Everyone is expecting a king who will overthrow Rome and usher in a visible kingdom of peace and prosperity for the Jews. But we're four chapters into Mark's gospel and Jesus isn't meeting those messianic expectations. Rome not only still rules over Israel at this point, they continue to occupy Israel at this point, imposing massive and excessive taxes upon Israel. And so Jesus isn't looking like the king God promised. You know why? Because he came to bring a better kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom of God into our hearts. But the disciples can't see that yet. Because Jesus isn't meeting their messianic expectations. And so here's what we need to know. And this is the big idea today, so you can write this down in your notes. Here it is. God knows what he is doing always, even when we don't. See, that's the point Jesus is making in these back-to-back-to-back parables. He's saying to his disciples, listen, I get that you're confused right now because the kingdom I'm bringing doesn't look like you imagined. Things aren't happening as you expected. People aren't responding like you anticipated. And so Jesus answers their questions by telling a parable and saying, first, believe me, even when you don't understand what I'm doing, even when things don't seem to add up. Let me ask you, anybody here ever sat in a theoretical mathematics class? Anybody ever, ever attended a theoretical? Raise those hands because you are my heroes. 
I shouldn't be raising my hand because I struggled to get a passing grade in trigonometry. You know, I've never really understood the point of theoretical math. Have you? I mean, isn't math by its very nature practical? Isn't it? Let's try it out here. Two plus two equals what? Nope. Two-thirds of a gallon of gas. <laughs> See how practical that is? That's math. Theoretical math just doesn't add up for me. I don't get it. And that's how the disciples of Jesus are feeling. If Jesus is the Messiah, and by the way, he is, then we would expect Jesus to be boldly pronouncing that message everywhere he goes and not telling parables. We would expect Jesus to schedule town hall meetings. He'd have the disciples nail up posters on synagogue doors. He'd contract with a marketing firm to push out press releases of where he's going to be shaking hands and kissing babies. And then when everybody shows up, he'd wow them with his healing power and his intellectual prowess so that the whole world would know that, yes, Jesus is the king. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's speaking in parables, and everybody's missing the point. Now, it's important for us to remember when we come to this text that Jesus isn't speaking in parables to hide the truth from people, but to filter out the people who are following him with ulterior motives. Remember, some of those guys are called Pharisees. They're always lurking in the shadows. They're always hanging around Jesus. They're listening in to Jesus. They want to build a case against Jesus so that they can kill Jesus. But we're only in Mark 4. It's not time for Jesus to die yet. And so he begins to speak in parables. And the disciples don't get why Jesus is doing that. And so I can just imagine that when they get alone with Jesus, there is a conversation that takes place between themselves, and then they probably send Peter as their, as their representative to come to Jesus, and, and he asks something like this, Jesus, can we ask you a question? We're confused here, so could we possibly ask you to reconsider your parable MO? You know, we really don't think that parables are the best idea here. They're not your best bet here. Your methods don't match your message. Just go out and speak clearly about who you are because Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says that as the Messiah, you're the light. You're the light of the world. But the parables you're telling aren't enlightening people. They're confusing people. You're leaving people in the dark as the light. And how does Jesus respond? I love this. How does Jesus respond? Listen, he knows what he's doing, even when the disciples don't. Because how does he respond to their questions? He responds by telling another what? Another parable. He's going to give them another word picture. Because as they say, a picture's worth a thousand words. So Jesus tells a story about a lamp. And he says, nobody buys a lamp at Kirkland's or a home goods and brings it home and puts it under a basket or under a bed unless you're a kid who loves to read after bedtime. 
Now, a lamp's whole purpose for being is to give out its light. And that's why you put it out in the open when you bring it home, right? You put it in the family room, in the open, in the dining room, in the open, in your bedroom, in the open, so that it can give out its light. It's just obvious. But then Jesus says this. Guys, I want you to understand why I'm speaking in parables. So listen. Here's why. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. And what does Jesus mean here? Well, we all get the point he's making, whether we realize it or not. Because even though Christmas is six months out right now, some of you parents have already begun buying Christmas presents or Christmas gifts for your children, things you found on sale. Or with all of these supply chain issues now in America, you bought stuff early to ensure that you would have it in time for Christmas. And what do you do when you bring it home? What do you do with it? You hide it. And then you pray that God would close the eyes of your children's hearts so they can't find it. You don't buy something in June and bring it home and say, hey, it's only June, but Merry Christmas, Johnny. Here's your slinky. Now, I get, okay, so 1970s reference there, right? I mean, you don't buy slinkies for Christmas gifts today. It would be more like this. Merry Christmas, Johnny. I know it's only June, but here's your new iPhone. Now, if you're a kid here today or a young person, don't expect that from your parents at Christmas. You aren't doing that in June. Instead, you're hiding, you're veiling those gifts. Why? Because it isn't the right time. It's like the night I asked Joanna to marry me on the steps of the Iowa State Capitol in downtown Des Moines, Iowa. I was hiding that engagement ring in my pocket the entire night. We even went ring shopping with that ring in my pocket. My prayer the whole time was, God, help her not to find a ring she likes better than this one. (laughs) I was veiling, I was hiding that ring until just the right moment when it came to unveil it, just the right moment when she could not say no. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, guys, listen, I'm the lamp. I am the light of the world, but right now I'm veiled. I'm hidden. The world doesn't see me for who I am. And you know why? Here's why. Because they see only what they want to see. I don't fit their preconceived messianic ideas or notions. I don't look kingly. I'm not wearing a crown. I'm from Nazareth. I don't have a royal entourage or a security detail. And I'm not commanding an army to overthrow Rome. But know this. I am the light of the world that Isaiah wrote about. So believe what I'm saying, even when you don't understand what I'm doing. What's veiled right now won't be much longer because after my death and my resurrection and my ascension to my Father in heaven, my light will shine to the ends of the earth through you. Through you. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your, sh- your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
That's going to be the disciples' role. And that's our role. In the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, His light radiates to the world through people like us. In fact, the reason that some of you, all of you, are here this morning is that someone around you shared the light of Jesus with you. They were a light to you, turning you on to Jesus. It's what we used to sing in Sunday school in the 1970s. This little light of mine, remember? I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, what? No. I'm going to let it shine. The light that was veiled temporarily in Mark chapter 4 is meant to shine universally through us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at Target and Costco and Walmart, even right here in our church. So let the light of Jesus shine in and through you because he says in verses 24 and 25 that what you don't use, you'll lose. Jesus is saying, listen, whatever you do with my words is essentially what you do with me. Now, I want to be clear here. I want, I want you to get this. It's vital that we understand that Jesus is not saying that we lose our salvation. I mean, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, and plenty of other places in the Bible, God makes clear that when he saves us, he keeps us unto the day of redemption. Amen? We cannot lose our salvation. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable because it's all a work of grace, his grace, and not our efforts and not our works to get saved or to stay saved. It's all Him. And so, this is not about salvation. This is about assimilation. It's about taking in the word we hear and believing it and applying it then and then sharing it. And if we don't use it, we'll lose it. Our ability to grasp it and understand it will diminish. It's like when my it's like when I broke my ankle and it was in a cast for six weeks, my right ankle, several years ago. And when my ankle was in that cast for six weeks, guess what happened to my calf muscle on my right leg? I lost half of it. Why? Because I couldn't use it. My ankle was in a cast. Atrophy set in. What you don't use you'll lose. But then Jesus says, when you use the word you've been given, you'll be given more. And this is the the spiritual principle of momentum. It's what we see in our physical fitness. You know the drill. When you work out three days a week, after a few weeks, your body actually begins to crave that. You sleep better. You're more alert. You actually feel your body pleading with you to work out but then you get COVID. Or then on the 4th of July, you hang out around the grill for too long, eating brats and potato salad, and you lose that momentum. And what happens? Now, just the thought of working out makes you tired. 
Now you're coming up with excuses why working out isn't such a good idea because you know that tomorrow and for the next three days after working out, you're going to be extremely sore. Can I encourage you? Don't let yourself go there spiritually. Catch the wave of God's word and build spiritual momentum by taking in the message of Jesus. The more you take it in, the more you will crave it. And the more you crave it, the more you'll get from it. And the more you get from it, the more you'll naturally share it. It'll begin to bring clarity to your confusion about the struggles in your marriage and your parenting, about God wants you, about what God wants you to know when you want to be married but aren't, about how good and faithful He is, even when you get cancer. You see, God uses His Word to build our faith in Him, even when we don't understand what He is doing. And so we can wait on him, even when nothing significant seems to be happening. That's parable number two. Can I ask you a hard question this morning? I've already talked about theoretical mathematics. I don't think this question is as hard as that. Do you ever get impatient? You ever get impatient? Guys, this is a big one for us, right? We guys tend to struggle with impatience. I want you to know the disciples do too. And so Jesus says to them, guys, guys, just wait for it. Be patient. I know God's kingdom doesn't look like much now, but I'm planting gospel seeds in the hearts of people. I want you to know that the harvest is coming. So what? So trust the process. Because even when nothing seems to be happening, something significant always is. You know why? Because God is always working. Even when we can't see it. Because so much of his work is what happens beneath the soil where we can't see. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses here is the word automatic. A seed sprouts, and then it grows. How? We don't make that happen, right? It happens automatically. God makes it happen. We plant the seed, we water, and then we wait, and we go to bed. Why? There's nothing more we can do. And so much is happening beneath the surface. God is causing it to grow. But that takes time. Sometimes a really long time. You know, one of the fun things about parenting is teaching your children this concept. I remember our older kids helping us to plant our first garden as a family in Iowa. And so we dropped the bean seeds in the ground and we covered them with soil and we watered them. And then we went in and went to bed. And early the next morning, the kids jump out of their beds, they run out to the garden and they get there and they're horrified. Dad, it isn't working. 
Nothing's happening. That's these disciples. Jesus, this isn't working. The gospel seeds you're planting aren't sprouting. You know, so often that's us, right? We want results and we want them now. You're a parent. You're teaching your kids about Jesus. You're leading them to Jesus, but they haven't yet come to him. And it hasn't just been months. It's been years. Or you've shared Jesus with your neighbors or your coworkers or extended family members and nothing. Or you're a pastor and there are empty pews in the auditorium in which you preach that are staying empty. Not just week after week, but month after month and year after year. Can I just be honest with you? I need this parable. I pray to God that more and more people will come to Jesus through us and worship Jesus with us and follow Jesus alongside of us here at Bethel. And when I don't think that's happening fast enough or often enough, I can begin thinking that nothing eternally significant is happening because I can't see it. So maybe, maybe I can do what my children wanted to do in our first garden. Dad, let's, let's dig up the seeds and let's help them to grow. Let's manipulate the seed. Let's massage the seed. Let's interject ourselves into that process. Now, maybe if we brought in some well-known pastors a couple of weeks a year, maybe that would help. Maybe if I wore trendier clothing when I preach. I was going to say hipper clothing, but the older you get, anything with hip in it, doesn't sound so good. Maybe if I wore trendier clothing when I preach, or maybe if we sang cooler songs before I preach. After all, that great film, The Field of Dreams, promises us if we build it, they will come. But then I remember this parable. And I remember that my role, like yours, is to plant the seeds. And then to wait, to water, to pray, and to watch as God causes that seed to sprout. Because get this, the most important stuff that is happening is under the radar stuff, beneath the surface stuff. It's the stuff we can't see. The stuff we can't see in our kids' hearts. The stuff we can't see in these pews. The stuff that often we can't even see in our own lives. God is working. He is always working while we're waiting, even when nothing significant seems to be happening. And that's why in parable number three, Jesus says, trust me. Even when you can't see where this is going. Because God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have ever planted a mustard seed in your garden. 
But a mustard seed is tiny. Two millimeters in circumference. It's the smallest seed that they would have used in their gardens back in Jesus' day. But Jesus says to his disciples, listen, don't be fooled by the size of the seed because it will sprout and it will sprout up to become the largest plant in the entire garden. And what Jesus is saying is, just wait for it. It looks really small right now, but there's coming a day when God's kingdom is going to dwarf all other kingdoms. You believe that? That's why for the disciples, this parable hits home. Because right now for them in Mark chapter 4, God's kingdom looks so tiny and fragile and frail. They're just this itty-bitty band of disciples hanging on by a thread. And so Jesus says, trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet because I know where all this is headed. I can see where it's all going. The kingdom is coming and it's going to blow your minds. Because this mustard plant, my father's kingdom, It's going to grow such large branches that the birds of the air from every kingdom and nation. By the way, if you want to do a little study of this on your own, you can go back to Ezekiel and you can go back to Daniel in the Old Testament and you can find the the nations and its leaders often referred to as birds and branches. Jesus says this mustard seed will grow to such a large plant with such large branches that people from every tribe and language and nation are going to come and find nest, or find shade and nest in those branches. And that's precisely what happens when Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to his Father in heaven. The plant grows, the branches spread, and by the end of the first century, 60 years later, The gospel of Jesus has spread from Israel into North Africa and over to Asia all the way to Rome. And today the branches are still spreading. In this room this morning, there are people from five of the seven continents worshiping Jesus with us. Over the past year, We've seen God's kingdom expand right here at Bethel with more than 20 people publicly declaring their faith in Jesus through baptism. And some of you may be thinking, yes, Pastor Ken, yes, PK, we saw it this week. We saw God's kingdom spreading and advancing because of what happened in our nation on Friday. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, listen, Listen, I'm 50 years old. Um, I was alive January 22nd, 1973, when the original ruling was made. But I don't remember that day. And so this past Friday was the first Friday in my memory, the first day in my memory, when America wasn't living under the shadow of federally sanctioned abortions. And that's why on Friday... I sat at my desk and I wept as I heard the news. God has been good to us. He has been kind to us. But listen, listen carefully. God's kingdom didn't just suddenly begin expanding on Friday. 
His kingdom has been spreading every day since January 22nd, 1973. You know how I know that? Because it was on one of those days since that day that I bowed the knee in faith to Jesus as my king. And the same is probably true for many of you. You see, the mustard seed is always growing on sunny days and cloudy days through rainy seasons and droughts, through good times and bad, so that one day birds from every nation will make nests in its shade. It's Revelation 5 verse 9, which says that there is coming a day when the redeemed from every tribe and language and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus to worship Jesus. There is coming a day when the kingdom will come in all its fullness, in all its power, in all its glory. There is coming a day, there is coming a day when King Jesus will sit on David's throne and rule over all the earth. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, there is coming a day. Is that day coming for you? Have you, like a bird, belonging to another kingdom, the enemy's kingdom, come to take shade in the tree of God's kingdom? Have you Come to the safety and security of what Jesus has done for you. Sheltering you and shading you from a holy God's righteous and just wrath against your sins and my sins. And Jesus dies on a tree, on a cross, to provide us the shade of the tree that is God's kingdom. He takes the wrath of God against our sins. He answers for it in full to provide that shelter and safety for us, shading us from His wrath and giving us instead His eternal grace. Jesus is the only way we can come into God's kingdom and experience the safety and security there. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 puts it this way. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, his kingdom. And there's nothing we could do to get there on our own. There's no good works, enough good works we could do to cross that great divide and take shade in that tree. Jesus has to go to the tree for us. And that's why Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, it's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest any of us should boast. Is that day coming for you? Have you taken shade 
and the tree of God's kingdom. Right now, right here, you can trust Him. Right where you are, repent of your sins and and trust in Him. Cross that line and say, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior and King. I'm bowing my knee in faith to Him. I'm coming to Him. I will take shade in the branches of His tree. And for all who are trusting in Jesus, I want you to know that these parables do speak directly into our lives especially during times of confusion like the apostles, the disciples are experiencing here. Listen, God always knows what he is doing. And because he does, there's three things that we can take out with us this morning. Number one, we can be free from worry and fear, even during times of confusion. These parables prove that wherever we are, whatever we're facing, God's got this. And he's got us while we're in this. I want you to notice here that Jesus does not withdraw from his disciples. It's verses 33 and 34. He brings them near. And he says, let me give you clarity. Let me explain so that you can know. He brings them close to alleviate their worries and answer their fears. And so secondly then, we can acknowledge that we're confused because we're with the one who is never confused. It's okay to acknowledge that we're confused. We don't don't always know what God is doing or how he's doing it or why he's doing it. Listen, listen, we don't have it all nailed. And that's okay to say. That's what the disciples themselves say back in verse 11 of this very chapter. Jesus, we aren't getting it. Help us. You know, if we think we're always getting it, we'll never come to Jesus to get it. We don't understand what Jesus is doing. Let's follow their example, the disciples' example, and bring our confusion to Jesus and ask for clarity from Jesus. And where can we get that clarity? Where can we get that clarity? Well, that's number three. We can go go to God's word for clarity. Now, understand here, please understand this. I'm not talking about perfect clarity. Because as we follow Jesus and his disciples through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, there are going to be times when we just sit there and we shake our heads at these disciples. They still don't get it. But Jesus never pushes them away. He always says, come close. So I'm not talking about perfect clarity we get from God's Word that will answer every one of our questions every single time. Not perfect clarity, sufficient clarity. In this book, God has revealed to us enough about Himself and His plans for us that we can believe Him even when we don't understand what He's doing. We can trust Him even when we can't see where this is going. We can wait on Him even when nothing significant seems to be happening because as Psalm 119 verse 105 says, My word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And so when we walk out of this room this morning, we won't know everything, but we will know enough. It's enough to know 
that God knows what He's doing even when we don't. It's enough to know that there is a tomb near Jerusalem, an empty tomb that once held the lifeless body of Jesus. And it's echoing the words of Jesus in verse 23 right here. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The risen and living King has spoken. Only believe. Amen. Father, take these truths and write them deep within our hearts, convincing us, showing us, revealing to us the glory and the grace of Jesus that we may trust, that we may believe, that we may wait and wait well. Are you a follower of Jesus? If not, would you become one? Take the wings of like a bird and, and fly into the safety of His grace. Only believe, trust Him. Right now where you are. And Christian, just let God's Word speak truth into your confusion, your unmet expectations, when things don't seem to add up. Believe Him. Wait on Him. Trust Him. In Jesus' name, amen.